So welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. This is me, William Porteous, doing your ears a favour, a service. I, I say that it's it's a stab in the dark whether whether or not I am actually doing you a favour. We'll see we'll see about that long term. Uh, I hope you're well. If you can hear something in the background, it's someone having a shower. Not in this flat. Indeed, our neighbours. This is a shared house. So what you're probably hearing in the background, if you listen carefully, is dripping water. I hope that person's cleaning properly. That's all I can say. And and also, uh, you'll probably hear Arlo, the dog, in the background, cleaning himself. I don't know what part of him he is cleaning, but he's probably doing a thorough job because he's been brought up well. So this episode this week is, uh, again, I must apologise, it's been a while since since I've put an episode out. But frankly, the, the reasons are a mile long and they're all boring. Uh, but this episode is Naomi Smith, who is uh, head of the CEO, the head honcho at Best for Britain. And you'll remember Best 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 for Britain if you paid any form of attention to uh, politics over the past three years, four years. So it was, it's a really fantastic chat. She's so open uh, and, and her past is freaking incredible. I had absolutely no idea about her background whatsoever none really and that's what's quite exciting about doing a podcast uh, with someone who's not all over wikipedia and is basically only really opens up on uh, the romaniacs podcast which i um i highly suggest you get into because it's fantastic and even then she's only open about politics so it was really cool to just uh, chat about her life which is it is fucking fascinating so definitely worth listening to. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I, there are a couple of things that I want to bring to your attention that I've been doing. I've been writing a film script for a while, and we've, we, as you know, I, well, since I've been away from the podcast, I've tried to do other things, uh, and one of them is is uh, script writing, uh, screenwriting, what have you. And we we've I managed to do a short film with my good friend, uh, cameraman friend Colin and you can see that film and it's on a website that I've put together and it's called somedaysarediamonds.co.uk the film is about 19 minutes long I would say it's a dark comedy it's got Tim Bentink in it from the Archers it's a good little bit of humor and it's a, a poignant ending I think I think you're going to enjoy it. I really do. It's not a comment on Brexit, guys. So there is no politics in it. It's just for shits and gigs. Uh, currently working on a film at the moment, and we're we're doing a, the second round of shooting in the next few days. So hence why life is a bit chaotic at the moment. But it's all good, and you'd be doing me such a a, a massive favor if instead of sharing this podcast, instead of writing reviews, you just watch my film. It, it's as simple as that, really. It, it's like I said, it's on somedaysardiamonds.co.uk and you can view it all there. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it's been really cool uh, bringing you this conversation. I, I really enjoyed my day trip up there. Let me tell you, getting getting away from the local Sydenham area in London it, and, and down to St. James's Park, sitting and having a Coke because I'm not drinking during the week anymore. I'm not doing it. I don't know about how you're doing. I don't know what... This is not a January New Year's resolution thing. It's... uh, I'm 40 in about a year and a half. And I was looking down at my stomach the other day and thought, geez, you know, 
fuck, this is, this is getting bigger. And how am I going to stop that? And guess what? You're going to hate me for this. Or you're going to love me if you've got one. But we, my wife and I, have a Peloton. It is fucking amazing. It is. It's, it's not cheap. You know, she's put it on her credit card, as is the want, as is the way with, with, with the, the way of the world. And frankly, it's, it's, ta- it's changed everything for me. I, I wouldn't say get one because they are damn expensive. But if you can afford it, you can figure it out. Then I, I would say it's, it's worth worth thinking about. If you haven't got the money, Jesus wept, you know, just get around, the, get on your bike, mate. Get on your, have a jog around the park or whatever. But it's it's crazy how how much difference these things make. You got I got these American people shouting at me that I'm perfect and that I just need to reach for the stars. I mean that's all I ever wanted. I, all I ever wanted in my life was to someone say, "You're perfect. Reach for the stars, kid. You can do this. Uh, you know, light this one on fire. Go, go, go." That's all I ever wanted from my mum and my dad. I never really never really got that. So it's like the affirmation that I've always been after. Who would have thunk it, huh? From an American across the pond. Uh, on a, on a bike. But there you go. If you're after validation to lose some pounds, go and get a Peloton. This show is not sponsored by Peloton, but if they would like to sponsor me, my fee is £12,500 an episode. Uh, Yeah, anyway, uh, I'm not having a, a breakdown. But anyway, if I was, I wouldn't be talking about a Peloton. I'd probably be talking about, I don't know, making films in a midlife crisis kind of way. But yeah, once again, if you want to check out the film, it's called The Name. It's a short film. It's 19 minutes long. It's set in the countryside, so it's healthy. And I can't really tell you what it's about because it will ruin it, which is ridiculous. But some okay, someone gets kidnapped. Sorry, that's me throwing baby toys. It's some someone who gets kidnapped and they get... Uh, put in the middle of the countryside and then they get given clues on how to get back to civilization etc etc you'll love it the name and it's on somedaysadiamonds.co.uk that's taken from a tom petty song by the way oh some of you that know me you know that i love the old tom petty god rest his soul anyway enjoy this chat with naomi it is fantastic who knows what's going to happen with Best for Britain? Who knows what's going to happen with Brexit? Well, not with Brexit. We all know it's going to end badly. Come on, let's get serious. Uh, and frankly, we talk we talk a little bit about that. We talk a lot about the, the Labour, uh, the, the situation with Labour as well. Uh, now my favourite, Clive Lewis, is out of the running. Uh, it's got to be Keir, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be Keir, but it would be good, be pre- you know, preferable to a momentum-backed freaky friday person i i'm holding back so i don't want to be an arsehole but who who really wants to continue with that experiment you know how did the how did the experiment with the momentum and jeremy corbyn guy go guys um say we're looking back in 20 years oh okay well um that went fine Uh, we we got a hard brexit and labor managed to lose uh its core vote and we had 25 years of Tory government. It was it was fantastic. I mean, poor people were so poor, but by the end of it, they'd just all uh, they'd all just given up, and we'd all given up, and it was wonderful. Yeah, and and then not to mention the the global warming, which was just uh, well, we're all living on Mars now anyway. So who gives a shit? Anyway, if we do end up living on Mars, I want a swimming pool. That's what I'm going to say about that. 
because I'm a big fan of Romaniac's podcast. Like I think everyone is really well that listens to this show, and it just really interests me to like know a bit about you and how you sure. how you, how how you got into politics in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Northern Ireland during the height of the Troubles, so that was a really politicised environment. And wow, well, there you go. I'm pretty glad I asked you that question. Yeah, so um, I was 10 when we moved there, and that was right at the start of the 90s. And I'd been born in northwest London. I'd grown up in this really cosmopolitan environment where I think I was only one of four, like, white Anglo-Saxon kids in my class. Like, it was so brilliantly and beautifully diverse there were loads of black kids there were loads of jewish kids there were loads of greek cypriot kids and of course there were loads and loads and loads of asian kids and i'd been to more diwali parties by the time i was 10 than i had been to like christenings and holy communions and things like that and then i went in to do the last year of um primary school in northern ireland and it was just like this weird monoculture and everybody was white and everybody was christian I mean, and like really observedly Christian, but yeah. you know, it's just there were these two tribes of Catholic and Protestant. Right. Like we remember on the first Sunday, the whole town was like looking at us to see which church we would go to. Would oh. we go to the Protestant church? Would we go to the Catholic church? Yeah. And then when we didn't go to church, that was really <laughs> bad. That was that was worse than picking a side, right? Like thunder come down. Indeed, um, it probably did actually know the weather in the north coast of. Um, County Derry so yeah it was it was that was a culture shock and then you know obviously I've got quite political parents both my parents were academics and my dad was a professor of political economy so you know I grew up in and around people talking about politics for sure yeah um but I do think that there was just something quite instinctive about it as well you know I, I look scientists will know far more about the nurture nature question than I will but I definitely remember sort of feeling a sense of injustice quite acutely and instinctively as a child when I saw it and I remember one of the first incidents when I went to my secondary school in Northern Ireland that there was a girl from Hong Kong there who was um, not massively fluent in English yet and the physics teacher being really quite racist towards her and and I was shocked I was 11 years old and I remember marching down to the headmistress to tell tales on him and I said I'm afraid to say that you've got a racist member of staff um, who has said something unacceptable to one of the Hong Kongese kids Um, and I was the one that got punished for that it was no you know you shouldn't make accusations about you know so that was you know a, a micro thing of, of politics in, this, this is in northern ireland yeah that, that is kind of i mean this is a, a semi perhaps um i don't know naughty thing for me to say but there is a culture within i don't know what is that like 90s yeah mm-hmm. i don't know that whole s- just sweep stuff under the carpet mm. we'd rather just ignore it and that that you know that stems many many different aspects of society and and at that time in northern ireland it wasn't like the 90s in 
mainland it was right. put your clock back 30 40 years oh, i mean look we're recording this on the day that northern ireland just approved same-sex marriage so right. fantastic now the whole yeah. of the uk has same-sex marriage but it is still way behind on other human rights I issues did, notably abortion church, but it is it's, you know I, I meant the catholic church in terms of sweeping stuff under the carpet yeah but the, look in northern ireland you yeah. had the dup you had the free yeah. presbyterian church you had the pace lights it definitely wasn't just a catholic protestant thing and in fact most of them on the extremes of their faiths would unite around those socially conservative issues it was one of the few things that that did unite them and um anyway so i was sort of seeing injustices i'd had this weird mixture of probably the most cosmopolitan metropolitan upbringing for the first 10 years and then straight into this semi-rural mid-ulster parochial only white people you know um tribal conflict and and it was weird because you also had this situation where there were bombs going off all the time i mean the entire town center of Coleraine, which is where we lived because it was the administrative headquarters of the university of ulster where my dad had got a job was completely flattened by a bomb in 92 not long after we arrived um I remember the school often being evacuated because there was a bomb scare dialed in. You know, it's not unusual for a class. Halfway through the class, the alarm goes off and that's it. All trapes outside and have to go and stand in the tennis courts for a couple of hours. What was that like? Like to go from one ex- one extreme, not extreme, yeah, one extreme to the other. Like well, I think children are very adaptable. Yeah. So I'm sure my parents suffered it worse in a way. You know, kids can be chameleons I got a very strong Northern Irish accent very quickly after arriving because children know how to survive and it's like I stand out I sound different I'm going to start talking like this because that's my only chance of not getting beat up so it is you know it's a straight 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 into it Um, and children just adapt so that would just became my new normal I didn't particularly feel that as being weird it was just another thing and and like Will Smith's um boom boom shake the room song came out around that and we would just quite gaily walk out of class going boom shake 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 the room tick 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 boom during the middle of a bomb scare because i think you have to adopt humor to cope with really extreme situations and this sort of perverse dark humor takes over you to just get through the situation that you're in yeah Yeah. and then but 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 what what Northern Ireland did have was a very unique political culture in that everyone was politicised. Everyone pretty much is tribal. Yeah. Children arrive at school yeah. already hating people. I'm not allowed to play with so and so because they're a Catholic. I'm not allowed to play with so and so because they're a Protestant. Yeah. Almost all schools are segregated. Most children get a sectarian education. Yeah. Um, and it was only really uh, when we started. Um, exploring um certain values within religious education classes that it became very profoundly acute to me how sick a society i was being brought up in at that stage and the sectarianism that i was being subjected to not just me obviously all the children and there were classes where the re teacher would say if you're gay you will burn for eternity in a bottomless pit of fire unless you renounce your homosexuality and let jesus into your heart I'm terrified at how accurate that is, that delivery of that. It was emblazoned on yeah. my brain. And, you know, I'd grown up in 
a situation where my parents were, you know, academics that had loads of gay friends. Right, yeah. And it, it it would just, I just couldn't bear that the children that I knew, and you know, I had a gay friend. He knew he was gay. We knew he was gay. His parents did not know that he was gay. Right. And he would come to our house to dress up and put makeup on and be who he wanted to be because it was the only safe place he had to do any of that when we were like 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Um, and I knew that he was, you know, being subjected to the same and that his friends, therefore, would also be judging him. And male, young male suicide is still much higher in Northern Ireland than it is in other parts of the UK. I mean, it's a really, really big issue. I mean, suicide, full stop, I think, is, is pretty high, but particularly for young men. So everyone was political. Um, we were operating in a sort of weirdly... Um, safe but unsafe environment so by that i mean of course you had all this dreadful sectarian violence happening um bomb scares if you went into a, um, a shopping mall in the center of belfast for instance you it was like going through airport scanners you know you that was just part of the course that you would have to scan your bag scan your clothes just to get in to go and buy a skirt in top shop um but other than that there was no crime very very low crime so having grown up for the first part of my life in London where my parents were terrified to let me out of their sight I wasn't allowed to go out on my bicycle on my own or anything like that yeah. in Northern Ireland at that time like totally fine people left their cars unlocked I mean it's partly because the protection rackets were going and the you know and the terrorist groups yeah. were doing the policing and you wouldn't bloody dare well, you rob yeah, somebody's yeah. house because you get right. tarred and feathered for it but, but you know big. as long as you put a bomb under a van that's fine you know so it's this yeah. really weird thing of like suddenly I did have loads of freedom and I yeah. could stay out until 10 o'clock at night with my mates and you didn't lock the back door and you know but but people were being blown up so, exactly yeah, so swings and yeah. roundabouts yeah. um and then the good friday agreement was being brokered so that was around the time that i'd gone to sixth form um i was doing a-level politics a-level history and a-level economics and what was interesting about that was that they were basically all the same subject in ireland because the history was irish history yeah. <laughs> and about the relationship between britain and ireland and yeah. um, that was the syllabus um uh politics was basically still exactly the same as it was in Eamon de Valera's time the the, the parties were the same the, but their names had changed that was it it was yeah. still this sort of you know struggle between um home rule and self-determination and and being controlled by London and Westminster yeah. um and then economics is obviously a social science that draws on you know politics and interactions between you know geographical trading partners etc so it was weirdly sort of constantly political everything I was studying against this backdrop of the Good Friday Agreement being negotiated and obviously Mo Molum's presence and then the input from America and the Clintons was, and Senator George Mitchell um, and so politics was something that you could feel you know it was something very 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 tangible and close to your everyday life and I was too young to vote in the refer the Good Friday Agreement referendum but I was very aware and so were all of my school friends about how this was going to begin to change things and um, the surrendering of arms and how it would impact our lives so like a really weird example for a teenager um, I remember going to a school ball with a boy who was a little bit older than me that invited me to go with him and afterwards we'd gone back to somebody's house for an after party and we were hungry and wanted pizza and we called our usual pizza company who said, no, no, we can't deliver there. Yeah. 
because you're in East Belfast now and we can only really deliver to West Belfast. Yeah. And that's not because it was outside their catchment zone of how far their bikes would be prepared to go. It was because they literally couldn't go in there. They'd be attacked. You know, it was, it was unsafe for them to enter right. that area. And then all of a sudden feeling like, brilliant, we're just going to be able to order a pizza from any company, anytime, and it'll get delivered. You know, right, so yeah. that the sort of the teenage brain understanding politics in its own terms. And that's how real it, it felt. And then we got involved in um, the Patton Commission. Now, if you remember, Chris Patton was yeah. the former governor to Hong Kong, uh, last governor of Hong Kong yeah. um, from the UK. And he was tasked with doing a review of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which was um, what the Northern Ireland Police Service was formerly known as. And it was staffed almost entirely by Protestants. And it, there were certainly no-go areas for the IUC that they couldn't go in and police wasn't safe for them you had to have the military presence there to accompany the police a lot of the time and and he led this review of okay well what it was called the Patton Commission and it was what kind of policing do the people of Northern Ireland want and I was involved with a cross school so cross Catholic cross Protestant cross grammar school cross secondary modern schools um review of of um, focus grouping you know what did young people want of policing and we fed all of that in and so we were really given the opportunity to actually engage in democracy democracy wasn't something that happened to us it was something that we participated in and did right. and were invited to so that was great um you were how old at this time i was 16 17 yeah. at this time mm. um and then i um finished my levels uh, did a gap year working in London for an accountancy firm and then went to Leeds to do university and I was just really struck by how non-political everybody was at university I was like dreaming of you know I'm going to get to university and it's going to be amazing and we're going to march and protest and there's going to be this wonderful culture of we're young we're the next generation we're going to change the world and the apathy was just amazing and I couldn't believe it. And, yeah. you know, none of my friends in Northern Ireland were apathetic about politics. Um, they might get pissed off with it and have, you know, yeah. it wished it hadn't been an acute part of their lives, but it was. And they all knew a lot mm -hmm. about it. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I was studying with people who were doing social sciences and didn't have particularly strong views. I think they just signed up for the course that only had six hours of lectures a week. So did you feel like a bit of a... I did. I felt... I felt... I did. And I, I sort of felt a bit like, I, where are my people? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, And I went around all of the Freshers' Fair political groups and um, Leeds Northwest was the target seat for the Lib Dems. And this was turn of the century, so we had um, the 2001 general election looming quite soon after us so the Lib Dems were quite involved on campus then and so I did join up to the Lib Dems because I was anti um tuition fees yeah big time um and Labour had just introduced them um and because they were in favour of electoral reform and in the Good Friday Agreement um proportional representation under single transferable vote was a precursor to peace because you had these underrepresented groups, the Catholic Republican vote, that were being underrepresented in Northern Irish elections up to that point. And I knew that without, um, you know, sort of positively discriminating in favour of underrepresented groups where actual discrimination exists, you can't redress the balance. So whether it's apartheid South Africa, whether it was 
reforming the police service in Northern Ireland and having positive quotas for um, uh, Catholic police officers uh, or, you know, in the voting system. Um, Were you this in tune, like, back in... Have you always been this, like, should we say woke? I hate... I'd probably want to say that, like, but... I'm probably not woke on some issues. Because well, I get the I get the feeling that you've always been like this in terms of like exactly how I feel about politics. Obviously, I'm not a, where you are. I'm a gardener, but like I, I mean, in terms of like, I can imagine um, Naomi eighteen going to university and just absolutely smashing it. Just going right. This is wow. This is a political <laughs> outfit. This is a vehicle. I am getting in it. And, and I've always had firm views. Put it right. that way. I think yeah. it's that's, that's probably safe to say that I've always sort of had a strong sense of right and wrong and what needs to be they done. I love having you on board like the Lib Dems up there must be like oh my god someone's actually interested in politics you'd have to ask them there were there were there was a good cohort there were a lot of of great people involved um at that time actually and most of whom are still doing really good stuff for progressive causes whether inside or outside of the Lib Dems um mainly outside yeah yeah mainly outside yeah um so I sort of kept you know my hand in with Lib Dem stuff there but I think I've always sort of been very non-tribal and outcomes focused. So I've never needed a tribe. I, I didn't, and, and, and whether you're involved in any um, community activity, whether it's political or just, you know, you like your local residence association or whatever, you will find that those kinds of groups tend to attract people who are a bit lost and maybe don't have other normal quote unquote social environments in which to inhabit and so do hook onto it as a tribal thing who here's some people that will accept me and aren't going to tell me to go away even though i'm very odd it really freaking is yeah i'm not in the lib dems anymore but i used to be uh, you know active locally in my local um london uh area and uh I mean, honestly, I don't want to be disrespectful to these people because they're really sweet, but you've got that feeling that it's mm. just literally about a little... You're here because like, nowhere else will help you. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing else to do or you're... Yeah, like, yeah. That's fine. But really, just like, in any terms of, like, political engagement, actually sitting down with them having a conversation about why they're there, it's like, well, um, I haven't really got anything else to do. Mm, mm. You know, that's so, so common. So, in, but, mm. but it's interesting that you say that, though. But, yeah, anyway, yeah, 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 no, I... I, I I think it sounds very familiar to lots of yeah. people that have been involved in but politics. But either way, you fit in yeah, to, the, to, the, to the whole 18-year-old, right, let's do this kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So the Lib Dems are against tuition fees, yeah. they are in favour of proportional representation, and then while I'm at university, they become anti-Iraq war. Right. And Charles Kennedy came to Leeds and spoke to us all and was just such an inspirational... You, you met Charlie Kennedy? Yeah, I've got a really hilarious photo of me looking incredibly thin and young with a short hair. <laughs> and for those of you who only ever hear my voice, I've just described the opposite of how I look now. Um, uh, and uh, he, he was just such a passionate pro-European, such an amazingly brilliant internationalist, and not tribal. And remember, in '97. Um, there had been this sort of loose lib lab pack that Paddy obviously had overseen. Um, God rest his soul. And yeah. Charles, yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, same to Charles. And 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 he was cognizant of the fact that Lib Dems and Labour's fortunes rise and fall in parallel with each other. Yeah. You know, twentieth century history and 
the history we have to date in the 21st century has shown that they do well at the same time and do poorly at the same time. They are not in competition with each other. Um, And that's that's kind of like getting onto my point. So um, then I graduated, worked in accounting and finance um, uh, at a big consultancy firm, didn't love it, kind of didn't love it because... Yeah, yeah, I'm more of an economist than an accountant, but there's probably less competition and more money to be made in accounting than economics. Um, And so I decided I wanted to go back to university and study Chinese, because at that time, every newspaper you opened was China, 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 double-digit GDP growth, and I thought, I'm all right at languages, this can't be that hard, can it? Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> you can be great at European languages and really quite truly really appalling at, at Chinese. Um, but basically, I had like six months before starting my masters um, and finishing my consulting job that I didn't have anything to do. Um, and it was two thousand and five, and there was going to be a general election. And what was the Liberal Democrat Youth and Students? I think it's now called the Young Liberals, okay. and in between it was called Liberal Youth. Um, were advertising for a head of office to um, run their student campaign for the general election, and then they get ready for their freshest campaign for the following September. Mm. Um, and I'd never worked in politics; I'd only been doing it as a you know volunteer student activist, that kind of thing. Um, applied and got the job. And unbeknown to me at that time, the only reason I got the job was because I was an accountant and they were in a financial black hole. Um, <laughs> and when I applied, they must have thought, oh, brilliant. <laughs> She'll be able to pay the debt down and uh, yeah, yeah, make yeah. sure we don't yeah, get to... Like? Yeah, it's shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hadn't even begun the Chinese at that stage. Right. So anyway, that was really good fun. I was working in Cowley Street, which was the Lib Dem headquarters yeah. at the time, working on a general election campaign. And I think it was that that really politicised me and that exposure. And of course, that was the the, the Lib Dem's high point. You know, yeah. 63 MPs, absolutely, you know, phenomenal um, record under Charles Kennedy. Went back to university, did Chinese, ended up living in China, came back carried on working in accounting and finance but all the while kind of like doing my progressive politics stuff in the evenings and weekends um and in 2010 stood as the Lib Dem candidate for the Cities of London Westminster constituency purely because I knew I couldn't win it was a paper candidate thing and I was not interested in being an MP and winning but it was just a fantastic experience and I got to meet the drummer from Blur who was the Labour candidate and I had been a Blur fan for, you know, at that stage, 15 years, 16 years, something like that. So Dave that was Rantry. amazing. Yeah, Dave Rowntree, yeah, yeah, well yeah. done. Um, so it was just a really good experience and, you know, then went back into, you know, I never took any time out of my day job to do that. Um, after that election, carried on um, doing my day job, but really pissed off about coalition right um and i voted for coalition at the lib dem special conference on that um because i thought it was the only way forward for the country as i think you know lots of reasonable minded people would agree what other option was there the maths didn't stack up in other directions but very very quickly began to see it wasn't coalition that was going to be harmful but how coalition was being done by the Lib Dems that was a big problem 
so got invited by actually some of the people that had originally helped recruit me to the party back in uh, the early noughties to, uh, at, at Leeds who were then working on something called the Social Liberal Forum. So David Hall-Matthews, who had been the Leeds Northwest candidate in 2001 before Greg Mulholland went on to win the seat um, for the Lib Dems and lost it again um, afterwards, uh, was, was involved in it. And this was about a grassroots movement within the Liberal Democrats of people who wanted social liberalism rather than orange bookism. Sorry, listeners, if you don't know what that means, basically, whether you're economically centre-right or economically centre-left is the sort of easy way of describing that. So those on the centre-left of the party wanting to make sure that there was clear bl- clear yellow water, that's a horrible <laughs> phrase, clear blue water between the Tories and the Lib Dems, particularly on economic issues. Um, and I became the chair of the Social Liberal Forum and we grew to having a few thousand members and paid member of staff um, and tried to lobby pretty hard at the party conference um, time and again and had some really good successes on, you know, NHS, um, you know, being against top down reorganisation of the NHS uh, on house building output needing to be much, much more significant than it was and basically rejecting all kinds of osbonomics that our coalition ministers were kind of you know gleefully signing up to that we found out has hurt them ever since anyway that was always you know again a thing I did in evenings and weekends and then um it was December 2015 and it was clear that Cameron was going to call the referendum on Europe and I that was it I just thought right I've got a jack in my job. Right. I cannot wake up on the 24th of June 2016 with a leave vote having not tried. Yeah. Got to try. So, I mean, what interest... And that was it. Full-time it, working on politics. It, it, it's, that is a hell of a journey. You've got that down to pat. That's incredible. I, can't, I don't think I could summarise my life journey like <laughs> that. I think I might get stuck quite a lot. I'd probably go down a really weird avenue and just start talking about all my status quo. I I am probably too much of a linear rather than lateral thing. (laughs) You're probably very creative by comparison. You must be like the same age as me because it seems like we've got exactly the same track because I was um, very much a Paddy Ashdown fan. My dad turned me on to all that, that kind of thing. Then the uh, Iraq war happened and I was like, oh my God, March did the whole March Charles Kennedy, totally fantastic, wonderful guy. Obviously, when he passed away, you know, devastated. And I think I would, I would have, I, I said, I was more into, I was more in bands and stuff at that time, you know. And um, it's just which is a really important part of yeah. like, political culture, and we've ceded too much ground to the right on cultural stuff. Yeah, it's it's just funny. It's funny to think what you would have been doing, I would have been doing, because like, it's just. I, I don't think I've got the capacity, like the intellectual capacity to be able to do these things, but I've still got massive passion for, for politics. But when, but when you were talking on um, Romaniacs about, um, it was the, the one you guys put out literally right after the result, your passion was unbelievable. I think a lot I of was people, very angry. But a lot of people listening to that would have been like, Jesus, that's amazing. It was very, you know, so concise. It's so... Um, eloquent Thank but like you. full of real real emotion so i had obviously the night before we'd sat in this office where we're recording we're recording in the best of britain offices just so you know listeners we'd been here all night pretty much till about six i'd met the team at one o'clock the following afternoon after sending people home to get a bit of sleep and there'd just been tears because we've got some staff who are eu nationals you know they were just in bits they had friends who had voted Conservative 
or had purposefully voted Lib Dem in a seat where we had to back Labour or the other way around and were unapologetic for that. And, you know, our hearts were just breaking for each other and what we'd lost. And then I'd sort of pulled myself together, gone off to the Romaniac studio. I'd seen Ian Dunt outside and I just burst into tears again. And he'd like whisked me off into a cafe. And I was just like, I'll pull it together for the show. I will, I will, I promise I will. And just between walking from getting our coffee into the studio, something just changed inside me. And that sadness just got replaced by such an anger. And I th- and so none of it had been pre-prepared. And Andrew just introduced the show, put the mic on me, and I just ran, <laughs> just like let it all out. Yeah. I was just like, I've got to do this. So I think... But both you and Ian. Right? Very, thank you. Yeah. But I mean, I only say that because it... it what happened, I think, at a lot of the Remain, um, Remain sort of focused podcasts and uh, I don't know, his political co- commentary, had become we'd become a little bit spoilt with the anarchic sort of taste or flavour of Parliament and how we'd you know repressed certain things of May's government and Boris's votes and what have you. And I'm not saying definitely not apathetic. Certainly, people knew as to have a fight mm. to go, but. To hear you guys talking like that was very much, and I do urge anybody like out there li- to, to listen to it. But hearing you talk like that was very—that's um, what I want. <laughs> that's mm. what it, was, it was so great. I wanted to, I wanted to hear passion. You 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 know let on to like how many how many times you'd warned people about the prospect of a general election, what the outcome would be, and no one was listening to you. And and again, like how much you um, you were worried about Nick Clegg and. Uh, and what have you in, in the coalition years and how it basically the Dems would get wiped out and no one was listening to you so it started to chime with me like you know how sad I felt for, not sad for you but I felt like well who the fuck is listening why are people listening to like these two outcomes that you have evidence on and no one's listening to you, you know? power corrupts and yeah. you know I think that's why I'm a liberal <laughs> um, and, and people in positions of power don't want to listen and they become very quickly in their bunker and you know closing down those that they may not want to trust or you know messengers of of information that clashes with their worldview or their prognosis for their own career trajectory or whatever it is um it it, it, you know it's incredibly frustrating and you know maybe there is also some misogyny in it as well you know i'm not a white overprivileged baby boomer man um Uh, that's not to say I'm not white, not privileged, I am, you know, and I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky to be able to work in in the environment that I do. Um, What, I mean, I know even if I, I can't even remember if I said it on that show, but quite soon after the European elections, um, I was flagging to people that, you know, we need to be ready for a general election. Mm. I don't want one, and it'd be disastrous for us, but surely, that's that's the obvious route for them mm. and i won't name them but incredibly senior mps within the remain movement who are still to this day incredibly highly regarded and should be yeah. tim farron yeah <laughs> <laughs> no um uh, n- not liberal democrat mps um uh, other party and no party um would say nonsense you know, absolute nonsense. And in, you know, we would have these um, regular meetings of lots of the sort of, you know, grandees of the Remain movement to plot out what we were going to do and who was going to do 
which bit of activity and what the latest fight was in parliament that week and and you know they i'd I'd voiced my and i was a brand new ceo i'd never been a ceo before i'd not therefore been going to those meetings before and i just wasn't listened to but not only was i not listened to i was often dressed down and it would be nonsense you don't understand when a conservative M, uh, prime minister gets the keys to number 10 they bed in they don't risk going to the country and giving that up they want power more than anything else and once they've got it and there's no and i was like but we're not operating in a normal environment we're operating in a minority administration where they can't do any of those things it's only faux power right, yeah. and these people are rich enough to afford a nicer flat than number 10 downing street you know, it's not <laughs> the trappings of office are pretty meaningless if you can't do any of the yeah. stuff that you want to do, and you're sort of facing humiliation by not being able to pass any legislation whatsoever. And I think we shouldn't have a general election, but I think we need to be prepared for one. No, 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 nonsense. And I went, well, I'm going to prepare for one because I think we should. Um, I'm also going to prepare for the scenario where Nigel Farage doesn't stand candidates against conservatives he deems Brexity enough. Right. Um, oh, well, you A, you were wrong about Boris Johnson calling election, and B, you're going to be wrong about that. Nigel Farage has never been so close to sniffing, you know, what it's like to be an MP as now. He'll want the power of having MPs. Yeah. He's so close. He isn't UKIP. UKIP might have stood down for the Conservatives in 2017, but he wasn't leader of UKIP at that time. So all these people, you know, like, remain... Yeah. MPs yeah, 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 yeah. All telling me that I didn't know what I was talking about. Not all of them. Some of them just said nothing, yeah, nothing. and so sort of let me um, get get the the dressing down. Um, Are we talking like boardroom dressing down here? Like, like yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, not my board. My board are yeah, wonderful no, and brilliant, but wider. yeah, like in the wider remote movement. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we just carried on doing our data. We, we use a technique called MRP, which is a, it's a much more accurate way of polling the country than just a standard poll. And then we would be able to run analysis on that of like, okay, so this is how many MPs each of the parties gets if no pacts happen. Here's what happens if Brexit parties stand down for the Tories. Here's what happens if there is a progressive alliance on the other side. Here's the outcome if Labour don't participate in that pact, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we were using that to try and encourage MPs not to call an election but if you're going to bloody well make sure that you fight fire with fire by having an alliance on your side um and in you know in in full credit to them the vast majority of MPs completely agreed with us particularly the backbenchers of um uh, Labour and until right at the end the Lib Dems obviously um, but you'd had, you know, Jeremy Corbyn bring it on. Right. You always had the SNP sensing it would be a successful outcome for them, which all the data suggested it would. So, yeah. you know, um, they were restrained as long as they felt they could. And it was only really at the last minute then that you had the Lib Dems coming out for it with the SNP, making it you, difficult for Labour to say no. So the amount of, you know, people that turned out for the um, people's vote mm. that much. Oh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. Do, do you think over those three or four million plus times that they've marched. I mean, I voted, in a, I'm sorry, marched in a couple of them. Mm. Do you think that some of those people, uh, you know, um, Anna Subri, perhaps, um, Vince Cable, the Lib, Lib Dem sort of thing, they, they sort of thought, with the Green Party, thought, 
we take an anti-Brexit approach in the general election. We, we've got a million people here around us you know, marching. They take that energy and they almost just march straight off a cliff in terms of like the Lib Dem approach, for example. Joe Swinson, total revoke. Um, and mm. this obviously is, I don't know, as, as crazy and as, as energetic and as amazing as that sounded to someone like me, a hard old Remainer, it, it kind of just sat smacked of... Um, naivety almost mm. I don't know what that was what was your take on that the Lib, the Lib Dem approach to the to all the, the whole people vote you know that kind of thing um, well the first thing to say that you know fantastic mobilisation of people mm. and brilliant. you know absolutely brilliant effort by people's vote to pull all of that off um, and most of them if not all of them and by them I mean you know the actual staff of the people's vote sharing our view that a general election would be absolutely disastrous and doing their level best to lobby MPs against backing it. Um, from the perspective of the Lib Dems, I wasn't and have, you know, I've been a cross-party campaigner throughout the Social Liberal Forum years, coalition years, working, you know, across party progressive alliance stuff to, you know, make sure that we're working with each other, not fighting each other. So I was by no means in the inner sanctum of decisions being made by the Lib Dems, but from what I've heard, nor were a lot of people who probably should have been, and that it was a this sort of bunker mentality that was sort of going on and I think that's been going on a lot we don't want to, party, yeah. to listen. Um, I mean, Vince Cable was very anti the revoke policy, right, yeah. and that only went through conference after he stopped being leader. Right. Um, I mean, he's even had some fairly soft Brexit views in the past. Um, one of his first um, op-eds, I think it was in the New Statesman after the referendum, was sort of anti-free movement. And you were like, oh, God, shut up. <laughs> don't, please don't say that. Um, so, I, I, you know, I can't profess to know what was really going on there other than this sort of weird self-belief. And they claimed that they had data showing that they could get far more MPs than we were predicting they would get yeah. and we were predicting more than they actually got. Sorry. 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 No, we can carry on. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to edit this down. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think Revoke was a good position for them to take when they were at 8% in the polls following, you know, 2015, 2016. Um, I think it was a ridiculous policy to adopt when they were at 20% in the polls yeah. and Labour were just about to come out for in favour of a confirmatory vote you know it just seemed churlish right. oh what now their properly remain will be even remainer right and then, and then the, the, I think the Joe Swinson I'm gonna I could be your prime minister thing just I think if you've been a popular leader for quite a long time that that's a risk that might pay off yeah. when you're a brand new leader nobody has heard of I mean no normal people have heard right. of you exactly. to suddenly say I'm going to be your next prime minister was just so hubristic and we all know that yeah. after hubris comes nemesis but who, who when are they going to learn then because I, I don't I don't I, I just don't fundamentally understand like with Nick Clegg and coalition and, and the decimation that was literally predicted 
right in front of their faces by people such as yourself. Well, and by the elections, um, right? Yeah. So you had councillors yeah. being lost a year on year, being compounded, and then in 2014, you lose all but one of your MEPs, and you are the party of Europe, and yeah. your leader has challenged Farage to online, uh, sorry, to, to te- live televised debates. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to just listen to whinge bags like me predicting doom and gloom for you. Yeah. Your actual poll, you know, actual elections were proving it. So what's going on? I mean, I don't know why I'm asking so much about the Lib Dems. Well, obviously, because I come from that background, although technically I'm a Labour member now. Well, no, I am a, I am a, member, a Labour member now, but I I just, what the, what the fuck's going on there? Because in my head, it's like they've got everything that is required. They've got a really, you know, got a massive... Um, database. They've got the whole thing. They've got a good setup, good structure, but they keep making these terrible mistakes. Like you know, ter- terrible decisions. Is it? Is it? Can they still blame the media? They just don't get any uh, attention. No, or... no, no, no. I, I, it. What do I know? But you've got far less talent in the party than you did in Charles Kennedy's day when you had sixty-three MPs. So, yeah. for a start, you've lost a lot of good thinkers. Um, and a lot of people who are good at politics and good at campaigning. In so many areas of the country, your councillors were your activist base and, you know, you'd lost loads of those. So when you, when you, by the time you get to 2015, you haven't got many people mm. and many people who know what they're doing, which means your data isn't necessarily very good. Yeah. You then have an influx of new members who are great and that's brilliant and you're growing again post-referendum, yeah. but they've never done canvassing before. So the quality of your canvas data maybe isn't anywhere near as good as it would have been 10 years ago when you had some really pretty expert people doing it and understanding what somebody really means on the doorstep when they say, I'm not telling you. It means they're anti. It doesn't mean they are genuinely undecided, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you've got those kind of sort of structural issues. Um, And I think that they've just still got a pretty cosy culture. You know, there are some very... um, nepotistic decisions made about you know who gets which job and the sort of revolving door between leaders office and campaigns department and press and blah 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 and I think for a long time they just didn't have enough money to recruit big um, and bring in some decent advice Um, and and I just think yeah there are a few people controlling some of the levers of power that have got cozy setups and they're not you know, the right people to yeah. be making decisions. I mean, how many general elections does, you know, the the campaigns committee have to oversee that go disastrously wrong before they change who sits on that well, committee? That's my point. Is like, it's just, it, and it drives people like me completely fucking mental because basically I want to vote for the Liberal Democrats. I want to I wanna believe in a leader. I want to see their dynamism and, and excitement and genuine ability to reach out to, to other across party and talk about these things in a really passionate way. But I just don't think it's going to happen. I'm totally done with them now. But in terms of the future, not necessarily best for Britain, but in terms of like Labour, I know we're having we're talking about the um, leadership contest, and Clive Lewis is like sadly just it hasn't worked out for him, which is pretty devastating. Talking about cross-party alliances and stuff, and people people being able to pluralise and talk like normal human beings. Mm. I think he would have been great at that, but never mind. Um, where do you think we go now? Now Brexit is effectively remain is effectively over and that I mean you know no offense um, <laughs> but what, where do we go do you think in terms of like what's next on the agenda I think we need a civil society more than we've ever needed one um, if our opposition numbers in parliament aren't sufficient to ever win a vote mm. 
then people have got to do it and we just don't leave it to parliament um we're not going anywhere you know there's there's a majority for remain yeah uh poll out just today yes another sort of 52 and a half percent you know this this yeah. <laughs> cursed 4852 that that is now in our favor and has been sort of stubbornly for about a year now it's been a while yeah um over a year in fact and so we're not going anywhere, but where we channel our energies is going to potentially have to be into different spaces. Um, I would encourage everybody to participate in whatever, you know, community thing they can do. And we, we infiltrate all of that in the way that the the right have done more effectively than the progressive left for the last so however long. A, you can join a party, but you don't even have to go that far, even if you're just joining your local residence association, if you're standing for election to parish council, which you can do without any kind of you know party affiliation, um, becoming a school governor, mm-hmm. just making sure that progressive liberal ideas are being um, uh, proliferated in all of those environments. So and just being an active, being an active citizen, yeah, yeah. Don't let democracy happen to you. Yeah. make it happen no, that's really cool I mean I, I know I know we're, we're pressed for time it's really annoying how li- how quickly everything goes especially, especially when you've got a talker like me no, no <laughs> I, I just I just love the fact that you're so articulate at it I don't have to like drag out you know, I don't have to sound like a complete dickhead because that's basically what happens most of the time I just I'm an R and just mess <laughs> everything up but it is interesting now because like, for me I'm like right um, remains dead um, what do we do? Do we focus on the arsehole that Boris Johnson is, or how completely absent he is, but he's still there, like Cummings, whoever is pulling all the leads and stuff? You know, how do we, how do we focus on stuff other than okay, like you, you articulate really well, like you know, the idea of getting involved in your local community. I mean, is it about like what I've done, join the Labour Party, vote for whoever? Is it is it is it as simple as that? We get Keir Starmer. We we the the, the I think you said. Um, the, the guy the Tories fear the most. Mm-hmm. Is it just is it about that? Is that a daft thing to do to join the Labour Party? No, it's not daft. Do you know? Or there's a case to say join the Tory Party. Yeah. And you know and infiltrate them. I'm sorry, my um, heart just stopped. So sorry about oh, that. God. CPR now. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's not a stupid thing to do. It's absolutely yeah. the right thing to do. I mean, maybe do it before the cut-off deadline to vote in the leadership <laughs> elections of those right. parties is is an sorry. important thing to do. Yeah. Um, and and keep on writing to your MP, even if your MP is a you know dreadful lever. Yeah. Why should you know they not have to deal with? It? They represent you. Yeah. Not just the people who voted for them. That is what parliamentary democracy is about. That is what representative democracy is. Keep the pressure up on the buggers. Yeah. You know, don't let them off the hook lightly. Um, and I think it's about reframing everything that we do in in terms of the language. So last week, MPs. Tory MPs and you know others that aren't on the progressive left voted um, against um, reuniting the children of um, refugees yeah. who'd been sent to travel alone with their parents. And rather than sort of framing that around you know refugees and asylum seekers, we we should frame it around compassion for children. This is not a government that has compassion for children. Yeah. You know the nasty party. Yeah, um, and I and. You know, I think they're going to go beyond nasty, aren't they? They already have. Yeah, mm. and, mm. and that's is is the antidote. Can I? I've played devil's advocate for two seconds. Keir Starmer's going to win this thing. I think he's going to he's going to win it. What's the future like then? I mean, is is it literally like 
dude, he's our knight in shining armour. He's going to come down like Gandalf and rescue everyone at deep, deep, whatever the mm. hell castle it was. Sorry, Lord of the Rings. Mordor. Mordor. Um, is that is that a thing that's gonna can we can we look forward to that? Or well, I think, just, and that's a lot uh, of pressure on you, by the way. What's it gonna is, happen, Ermi? Uh, oh, well, look, I'm so beyond predicting political outcomes now because yeah. of Brexit sort of tearing everything up. Um, I would challenge your assertion though, because um, the left of so the, the, the Labour Party membership is very, very different to what it was. I know you've joined, and we're encouraging lots of other people yeah. to join, but you know. that it's the membership that it's all going to come down to ultimately and so I don't know that we can assume that Keir Starmer will win this thing now he will get a lot of second preferences he will get presumably all of Jess Phillips and Lisa's second prefs and most of Rebecca's so you're right insofar as you know it is not impossible that he's going to win it's highly probable Mm. but Rebecca Long-Bailey could still win but under your assumption that he wins, um, will he be a knight in shining armour? Almost certainly not. Never meet your heroes. People can only ever really let you down. We've got to get away from this sort of presidential style approach. I know that Boris is that and Farage before him. You know, there was sort of one strident unity figure for the right and and, and the Leave community. Um, I think his approach, I don't know him well at all but I do know of him and I know lots of people very close to him who and and it chimes with what you've seen of him is that he is very um much the kind of leader who will let other people shine Mm. so I can't imagine him wanting to compete with Jess Phillips I can certainly see him saying I might be the leader but please, you go and do, you know, loads and loads of media. Please shine. Please be the leader that replaces me or, you know, whomever else in, in the party wants to shine. He, he, he won't um, trample on talent in the way previous leaders have done. And um, I would include leaders of other parties I, I in that like as well. You say all power corrupts and everything. I, I met the guy once and I've got to say this I, I can't see him being an arsehole no I can't I, mean, I, was, I was interviewing Nick Clegg and he came out Nick, he came into Nick Clegg's office in mm. his house and he was so fucking nice to me and I was like okay even then like it's still Keir Starmer he's got that bit of that factor about him I don't know what that is no, it's, I don't know X factor but just nice person mm. factor mm. I've got that for so many people like Gina Miller and stuff but definitely I think he would be so refreshing for mm. me anyway but, mm. But still not because he's still white male privileged blah blah blah. Um, mm. So I, I don't know, but you can't have your you can't have your we can't have everything. But I just think it's too much pressure to put on one person to be like yeah. you have to be our night shining on because right. you're all we've got. I yeah. think he'll be good. I like of course I will. Um, <laughs> but I, we can't be lazy, right? No. We can't be like oh you're the leader now so you can do it all what he needs to succeed is for all of us to continue being active citizens to continue pushing a progressive agenda calling out injustices where we see them holding the Tories to account empowering our progressive MPs to fight the good fight for us um, and and to start encouraging cross-party working and what I really hope with Clive being knocked out of the race is that Keir can now begin to adopt some of that language that Clive spoke well about in terms of working with other parties the the size of the majority Labour has to um, overcome 
uh, at the next election, the swing required of them is bigger than the swing Tony Blair achieved in 1997. Yeah. And that's before boundary changes. So the scale of this is bigger than the Labour Party can ever cope with. It will be required that they will work with the SNP and the Lib Dems and the Greens and Plaid and, you know, others to, I mean, the alliance. You know, we now have two Liberal parties represented in Westminster, some small comfort for progressives in an otherwise gloomy parliamentary situation. So I think, you know, Keir does need to look at the, the good stuff that, Clive was saying about all of that and, and adopt yeah. that into his own campaign now. It's, it's a lot to take on, isn't it? When, you, when you, you map out all those different elements that he needs to sort of pick up, he'll need to, he'll need to sustain them and, mm. and also turn people onto it that aren't fully mm. aware of what, mm. this new, what's, mm. what is collaborative politics, or at least, I would say, try and wake up the, what, 33% of people that didn't even vote in this country? Mm. If he's trying to get 5 10% of those people woken up to it, mm. which is a hell of a I don't know how you go about telling, waking people up who've never voted in their lives, but anyway. That's for another podcast. Yeah, but thank you so much. Thank you very much. And you can say goodbye if you like. Well, goodbye, and thanks for listening. If you've stuck with us this whole time to me <laughs> droning on about my own life, which is pretty dull for everyone else, but great therapy for me. I so can thanks. Tell you it was not dull. But anyway, right? Okay. Thank thanks ever so much. much.